We are so blessed by the presence and ministry of the seniors in our church, or as we like to affectionately call them here at Calumet's Church, the classics. And if you're just joining us, you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we are on, if you can't tell, this series about different generations in the church. And so we've talked about kids, youth, young adults, adults, and this Sabbath today, our focus is on the awesome classics in our church, the most experienced generation in our church. They have our attention today. You know, it's kind of hard to define a senior today. It's a very broad demographic. Some people might say you are a senior when you are 70 years or older. Um, Some, though, would say, no, it's when you are starting to retire and maybe withdraw from some of those retirement accounts. So maybe it's more like in your 60s. That's when you are a senior. But hey, you can go down to Denny's and order from the senior menu when you are only 55. So maybe you're a senior when you turn 55. And I have been told that when you turn 50 years old, AARP will send you a membership card. I see a few thumbs up in here. So anybody offended when that happened? When you got that? Yes, a few of you. So maybe even in your 50s, dare I say it, you might be headed into that senior territory. I like the way Pastor Greg Laurie describes the way that we have this interesting view of the aging process. We have this interesting relationship with how we view age. It's from his book called The Best is Yet to Come. He says this, when we are kids and someone asks us how old we are, we say we are five and a half. Those halves are very important. The older we get, those half-year milestones seem less important because we are so eager to get older and become adults. So in our teenage years, we say things like, I'm going to be 16, even though we may only be 14 at the time. We're so excited to get older that by the time we get to adulthood, we say, I have become 21. That just sounds more official and important. But then before we know it, we turn 30, he says, because we have turned a corner. We become 21, we turn 30, but then we say, I'm pushing 40. Yeah, which I'm about to do in a few weeks is push 40. Now age becomes this weight that we push ahead of us. We become 21, turn 30, pushing 40, and then we make it to 50. We reach 60, and then for some reason we catch speed and we say we hit 70. And then Pastor Lori writes, after 70 and into our 80s and beyond, it kind of becomes a day-to-day thing. (laughs) We might say something like, today I hit Wednesday, or today I hit lunch, and that was great. And then we get to that century mark, and all of a sudden, we are right back to where we started as kids. When someone asks how old you are, we say, I'm 101 and a half. We have this interesting dynamic relationship, right, with age, the process of aging. And sometimes we don't like to be labeled as senior citizens. There could be many reasons why we have those feelings sometimes, but maybe one reason is because there is this misconception out there that seniors are those who have 
outlived their usefulness. But nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture testifies to just the opposite. In Psalms chapter 92, verse 14, it says, they, that is the righteous, will still bear fruit in their old age. We have the scripture up there, Psalms 92, 41. They, that is the righteous, who David's talking about, will still bear fruit in their old age. They will stay fresh and green. And I have an amen for that. Proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. While the righteous in their old age are still fruitful. And if you are looking for the secret to staying young and green and fresh, seems like you just have to spend time proclaiming God's goodness. Job 12 verse 12 says, Is not wisdom found among the age? Does not long life bring understanding? And Solomon, the wisest person there was, in Proverbs 16, 31 says, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. My kids love coming up, sitting close to me, and pointing out the different bits of crown of splendor that are sprouting in my hair. <laughs> but we are to wear it with pride. Scripture testifies to the splendor and value of those in their later years. And there are just as many miraculous things that God does through the elderly in Scripture as he does through those in their youth. God called Abraham and Sarah in the twilight of their life to go be the parents of a great nation. And it wasn't until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when they finally had Isaac. Can you imagine having a kid at 90 years old? Moses was 80 years and Aaron was 83 when they first started to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Would you like that kind of a job in your 80s? Imagine. Daniel was in his 70s or 80 when his faith was tested and he was thrown into the lion's den. And it was in the twilight of his career that he received some of the most important visions from God. Paul served as a missionary, wrote the prison epistles, mentored young Timothy, all as a senior. God gave the visions and inspiration that led John to write the amazing book of Revelation when he was an old man. You seniors, you classics are incredibly valuable. Scripture says so, and as a church, we want to say you are valuable here. Thank you for all you do. You are often the most committed, the most present generation in the church, often the most willing to offer your service and support, especially financial support. I also came across this interesting survey done by Barna Research Group this week where they asked people in the church across generational lines if their life has meaning and purpose. So part of that survey was, was to ask if across generational lines, people that attended church, if you found your life to be full of purpose and meaning. And the generation that had the highest percentage of reporting that their life was full of purpose and meaning were those in their senior years. So maybe those of us who are a little younger, not quite to the status of classic yet, if you're seeking more meaning and purpose in your life, maybe you should be talking to the seasoned saints in the pews next to you. They may give us some advice on how to find purpose and meaning. So what we want to do today, like what we have been doing the other Sabbaths, has, is to make sure that, 
that not only do we highlight the value of the generation we're focusing on today, but that we would be able to uh, make sure that that value and the wisdom of our classics especially are celebrated and shared with the other generations in this church. And there's many ways we could go about doing that from God's Word today, but I felt impressed to turn to a story where a senior is passing on some wisdom to his son-in-law when Jethro came and passed on some good advice to Moses in Exodus chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, will you open with me, or it will also be on the screen. This is when uh, they have recently left Egypt, and Jethro meets with them. Pick up in verse 13 of Exodus, the 18th chapter. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. Boy, in-laws can be direct, can't they? (laughs) What you are doing is not good. And then in verse 18, he says, you and these people who, who, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and his instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at, time, at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. This is wise advice from Jethro that he is passing on to his son-in-law. First reminds Moses that his main purpose is to help teach Israelites about God's law and God's character and help them apply that to their life. But then he goes on to to give him that great advice about having to share the load to um, not just lead on his own, but to share that leadership with others. And, And we could do a whole sermon just on the advice that Jethro gives to Moses, which is very effective, very helpful. But I was drawn, especially in this story, to the approach that Jethro took in giving this advice. That's where I want to draw your attention today. I think maybe that is even more important than the advice itself because it's what paved the way for that advice, that wisdom to be shared, to be passed down. So let's go back a little bit in the story to verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships that they met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jephra was delighted to hear 
about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Before giving any advice, before giving any assessment of the situation, Jethro listens, takes time to hear about all that has happened up to that point, the good things that have happened and also the hardships that have happened. And I know we have talked about the importance of this already earlier in this series, but I don't think that we can stress enough how important it is to be good listeners. I think maybe especially you classics, you seniors in our church, as you are seeking to impart your wisdom on the rest of us, wisdom that we desperately need, make sure that listening is a part of your approach. And those of us who are in younger generations than you, we need to also prioritize listening to you as well. I can remember when I was at seminary and uh, the seminary decided to do this mentoring program um, and it was, felt kind of forced and mechanical uh, for mentors in my life. It's always kind of been a more organic process where I've developed relationships with people and sought out, you know, their mentoring in my life. But Andrew's seminary was like, we're going to do this mentoring program. It's going to be good for you. We're going to assign uh, a certain amount of teachers to a certain amount of seminary students, and they're going to be your mentors, okay? And we're like, okay, fine. And, and some of the experiences that my fellow seminarians had weren't always the most positive ones. You know, sometimes it isn't a great fit who you got assigned to. But my mentor was an amazing mentor because that very first meeting where he called me into his office and we had about an hour, he did nothing but listen to me for that entire time. In fact, we went over that time. He asked me about my personal life, my family life, my call to ministry, my passions, my, my dreams for the church. And I, I love that meeting. It's awesome to be heard, right? To be genuinely heard and listened to. And it was amazing how that approach that he had with me opened up the door for me to really trust him and to, for, for me to share even more personal things with him in our subsequent meetings and for me to open up my heart and mind to the wisdom and counsel that he had that I needed. And it also gave him the understanding of how his wisdom and experience could impact my life and my journey. Listening is an important part of the approach Jethro takes with Moses. But then he takes, there is another element to his approach as we keep reading on in the text. Verse 10, he said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Upon hearing all that God had done for Moses and the people of Israel, Jethro starts praising God. He organizes burnt offering and other sacrifices, and they have a meal together, it says, in the presence of God. I know it's a little different than maybe what we would do today, but, but when you look at those elements of what they do together, isn't that basically them worshiping together? They gather, they praise God, they declare God's praises together, they go through some kind of liturgy together, some, some, um, something that will remind them of who God is and what he's done for them, and they spend time fellowshipping in the presence of God. 
Are they not spending time in worship together? Maybe that's something else for us to take note of. I am so thankful, family, for the ways in which this church seeks to be intergenerational in its worship together. Have you been blessed over the past few weeks by uh, Pastor Mark, Pastor Joseph, Rachel, and Chris Church, and others' attempts to really be even more intentional about that? Have you noticed that? You've been blessed by that? People from all different ages up here singing together, the kids singing after uh, children's story. Isn't that a blessing to worship together? It's different generations. And even though it's been especially a focus of ours the past few weeks, I think we do a fairly good job as a church family of doing this week in, week out. We have worship leaders of various ages with various worship styles. We have praise teams made up of people of all ages. We sing hymns. We sing modern songs and everything in between. We have wonderful, fine organists that play. We use piano and keyboard, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, bass, drums, strings, and lots more. Our worship is richly diverse. But you know what that means, family? That means that some songs, some worship sets, some instruments that get played up here are not going to be your cup of tea. They're not going to be your preference. Believe me, I know, because you tell me. (laughs) (laughs) But here at Cala Mesa, we embrace that don't we? We choose to live in and celebrate that tension in our worship because we want to see the same thing happen here that happens with Jethro and Moses and Aaron and all those elders, different generations coming together in worship. There isn't anything more beautiful than that. And I would argue that the worship Jethro and Moses and all those elders have together helps pave the way for some profound improvements in Moses' life, in the life of the community, and their ministry together. Could it be that the more intergenerational we get with our worship, the more profound improvements we will see God do in us, in our ministry, and in the life of our church? That's the second element in Jethro's approach. And then we get to the third. Jethro first listens to Moses, then he worships with Moses, and then he and Moses and and the elders and Aaron do something very, very important. What do they do? They eat together. Read verse 12 again for you. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. And we don't get too many details about the nature of this meal that they share together. Maybe this was just a meal that was part of the the burnt offerings and sacrifices that they were offering. It's also interesting to note that this is not the first meal that is recorded in Exodus of Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro, having together. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, we won't take time to do that uh, today. You can read that this afternoon. But if you go back to chapter 2, they also share a meal together. And that first meal, from the point of view of the flow of the narrative in the book of Exodus, it occurs just before Moses goes up to Mount Horeb to have that encounter with God. This second meal immediately precedes Moses' second and climactic encounter with God on Mount Sinai. So it could be that, that this meal is here because it's, it's very theologically or, or literarily meaningful to the biblical narrative. 
But regardless of what we know about the meal itself or what it symbolized, the simple fact is they ate together. And back then, sharing a meal with someone was one of the the highest forms of hospitality, one of the most intimate forms of fellowship. And I don't think it is much different in our culture today, especially when it comes to interactions with those in younger generations. I mean, have you ever heard somebody in their younger years say, no, I'm not hungry? No. (laughs) It's very rare. Usually it's the opposite. You know, family, of all the strategies out there to help us be a more intergenerationally healthy church, I wonder if the most effective would be if we just shared more meals with people outside of our generation. Some of the most meaningful conversations and moments of fellowship in my life have happened over meals. Has that been the same for you? Some of my most profound mentoring moments when I gained some of the the greatest wisdom that people have passed down to me have happened in a restaurant or a coffee shop or around the dinner table of somebody's home. Think for a moment about your past two, three, four weeks, who you shared a meal with, who you invited over to your house, who you went out to meet at a restaurant, who you met up for, for coffee or boba or tea or whatever. Think about who have you gone out to eat with, shared a meal with the last two, three, four weeks. If you're like me, most of those people were in your own generation. What if we were a church family that prioritized the exact opposite of that? I wonder what kind of improvements we would see in our community. I wonder what kind of doors God would open. Jethro listens to Moses, he worships with Moses, and he shares a meal with his son-in-law. And then he's able to pass down some much-needed wisdom I think it's also important to just mention one last detail. Moses also has a part to play in this. Like I mentioned earlier, it's not just about the older members in the church listening to the younger ones, but also the younger ones being receptive and listening to the older ones. Moses is receptive to his father-in-law's presence and involvement and input. In intergenerational churches, we define, maybe you don't remember, in the very first Sabbath of our series, we defined an intergenerational church as one where there is meaningful and mutual relationships that take place across generational lines. That means every generation must be good listeners. That means every generation needs to invite the input and involvement of the others. Jethro couldn't take the approach he did or give the wisdom he had if Moses wasn't open to it, if he wasn't receptive to it. I think that's important to note. And and as I was reflecting over this story, this approach Jethro takes, the receptiveness of Moses, and just the way in which it provides an opportunity for this beautiful wisdom to be passed down from Jethro to his son-in-law, It reminded me of the very first church I had the privilege of pastoring at. Actually, it was a district of churches, but this was the smallest church in my district. It was a tiny little church in Manchester, Ohio. Did we, did you get those uh, pictures? Ken, I sent them last minute. I don't know if you have a picture of the church or not. If not, it's okay. I'll have to show it to you later. No? 
Okay, we don't have it. We don't have it. Some other time I'll show it to you. It is a teeny tiny little shirt. It probably could fit inside the garden chapel. I think it's even more narrow than the garden chapel was. And if we had 20 people on a Sabbath morning, it was a good Sabbath. I mean, it was that kind of a, a small church. And predominantly, most of the members were senior citizens. I was in my 20s. I hadn't gone to seminary yet. The only experience I had in ministry was doing some collegiate and, and uh, youth ministry for a couple years on a public campus. I did not have a clue on how to serve that church well. But lucky for me, I had someone who was a Jethro. Well, his name was Charles Morris. And I also was looking for a picture for Charles today. He actually, I just got word, because um, the pastor who followed me there is still there, and I was talking to him this week about Charles, and he passed away a couple months ago, actually. Um, I was sorry to hear that. But Charles was the head elder of that little church. He was this tough Korean War vet who had tattoos on his forearms and rode a Harley. Like, he just didn't seem like he was the most approachable guy, but he was so kind and so gracious to me. And when I got assigned to this little church in Manchester, Ohio, I got Charles's number from the previous pastor and called him up and said, could I just come down to the church sometime before my first Sabbath and we can meet together, you can give me a tour of the church and, and we can talk shop a little bit and, and talk about the state of the church and maybe some ideas for going forward. Charles was delighted uh, to do that and he said, yeah, how about we do that? It, it won't take long for you to tour the church and how about after we do that, I'll take you out to eat for lunch and we can talk more there. Sure enough, it took about three minutes to tour the church when we met. <laughs> and then uh, he rode his motorcycle there, so he wanted to ride together to the restaurant so we could have some more time to talk. And so I was driving, and uh, we headed out to the restaurant together. And in our small talk in the car, he learned that I was not a vegetarian. So he said, oh, let's go the other direction. I've got a good place for us to go to. And, and uh, he had this favorite like old school diner that he loved to go to because he loved Reuben sandwiches. And oh, I got an amen or two, okay. I, have, I had never eaten a Reuben sandwich and I discovered I do not like Reuben sandwiches. <laughs> they are not good. You know, they have sauerkraut in them. I'm not a fan. Anyway, um, but there we were at this diner and I ordered the Reuben sandwich because it's what his favorite was. He couldn't stop talking about it. So there we were eating our nasty sandwiches. <laughs> and Charles, man, just like that seminary professor of mine, just asked me question after question, just wanted to know about my life, my family, my call to ministry, my passions, my hobbies. And I tried to also re return the favor and I, I asked about his time in the service, his family, his life story. And, and it was just a beautiful couple hours of us just listening to each other over a meal. And then in our conversation over lunch, Charles, of course, discovered that I loved to play guitar. I used to study that in school, and, and I was passionate about music. And he also learned that my grandfather sang in the King's Herald's Quartet back in the 60s. And his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, you've got to come over to my house. Do you have time? Just come swing by my house uh, for just a little bit. And I got some old records of the Heralds. I'd love to just play and, and listen to it with you for a while. Sure, yeah, we can go do that. And 
went to his house and he pulled out some of the records and he would kind of describe, hey, this song really meant a lot to me and in the journey I was at at this point in my life and, and it really spoke to me this way and he'd play it and it was really inspiring. And then after we listened to some songs from the Heralds, he had an old guitar. He said, man, I haven't played this in years. I would love for you to play it since you love guitar. And before we knew it, we were there in his living room worshiping together, singing songs of praise about our God. And it's so interesting, when I, when I read the story of, of Jethro and Moses this week, all of those elements to Jethro's approach were included in that first encounter I had with Charles. We ate together, he listened, and we worshiped together. And it had an incredible impact on our relationship, our ministry together. It paved the way for God, I think, to do great things right from the start there in that little tiny church, not the least of which was me being able to absorb so much wisdom while working alongside Charles. Manchester was a little church, but it had some of the biggest challenges I've ever encountered in ministry. A lot of troubling things, some dysfunctional things, some, some things that were tough to work through, and I learned how to navigate a lot better difficult, challenging situations because of Charles. It had a lot of elderly members, like I said, and I learned about how to be a caring presence and pray for people who are sick and, and dying better than any class I got at seminary, going to do those visits and prayers with Charles at my side. I am confident I would not be the person nor the pastor I am today if Charles was not willing to be a Jethro for me. And I wasn't willing to be receptive to that. So I just want to encourage us family, especially you who are the classics in our church, to put Jethro's approach into practice. In fact, I want to challenge you. Why don't you uh, pick at least one of those elements in that approach to do this week Find someone that you can listen to or worship alongside. Maybe you've got to sit in a, in a different pew next week so that you're by somebody who's in a different generation than you. Or spend some time sharing a meal. And you've got to do one of those three things with somebody who is not in the generation of your own. And don't just do it with like your kids or your uncle or grand, I mean, that's good, but, but try to do it outside your comfort zone. Just one of those things. And maybe for some of us, especially those who are in the younger generations, your challenge this week might just be to be more receptive to having a Jethro in your life. Regardless of the challenge that you need to prioritize more, the truth is we need Jethro's approach in the church because we need the wisdom of the classics in our church. We claim that promise today. In your name, we will not fail as we build upon you, Jesus, our lives, our church, our mission. Oh, Lord, the gates of death cannot, <laughs> cannot ruin it, Lord. We are delivered from that. We thank you, Lord, for the chance to make a commitment today to be even more aware of the wisdom of another generation. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the ability to have Jethro's approach.
our seniors especially, and for those of us in all the different generations. And may, as we do it, Lord, have you always as the foundation. In Jesus' name, amen.